0: Australian basketball's pioneering big man, Luke Longley, was already an established NBA player and two-time Olympian when he got the defining news of his life. He was being traded to the Chicago Bulls. The sports brightest star, Michael Jordan, might have retired by then, but when he announced his comeback a year later, Luke suddenly found himself at the heart of a Beatles-like world. By the time the music stopped, he had three championship rings, a place in history as a member of one of the world's greatest sporting teams. After an Olympic finale in front of adoring Sydney crowd in 2000, Luke then all but vanished from view before re-emerging recently as assistant coach for the Boomers, just as medal hopes for our own dream team are at an all-time high heading into Rio. Uh, Luke, good to see you again, mate. And you, Bruce. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, pleasure. Come and sit down and welcome to Olympians Off The Record. Very good. Luke, it's great to catch up. Do you enjoy reflecting on your career? Yeah,
1: I I do enjoy it. I don't do much of it. I live um, remotely, basically, and and, uh, a lot of the people where I live don't really, you know, they're not into the basketball. So, um, yeah, when I get the chance, I really enjoy it.
0: We love our champions uh, coming back to the sport, and, and so for us, for you to be involved with the Boomers is uh, that's, that's, that's great. Well, it wasn't planned.
1: I, um, when I finished with basketball, I sort of fell out of love with not not basketball per se, but just, you know, I was injured. I sort of been torn away from the sport effectively. It wasn't an easy ending, and we'd come fourth in the Sydney Olympics, which was you know, which was not not what I wanted. And so it was a bad ending to my career, in my in my opinion anyway, and just got right away from the sport. And then I stumbled back into it. Brett Brown, who was the coach of the Boomers uh, for the London Olympics, um, asked me to come down and just have a look at a couple of guys and, and say good day. And next thing I knew I was on the court and the whole language and feel of it started to flow back to me. And so I stayed around for the game and I really enjoyed that. And next thing you know, Brett's up, Brett asked me to be more involved and come to camp and I did that. and got some real traction with the guys and, and um, sort of fell
0: in love with the sport again. Was it inevitable that you were going to be a basketball player?
1: Well, I started out as a rugby league player in Perth. <laughs> now, that's unusual. <laughs> yeah, I was fairest and best in <laughs> under 10s, I think, or under 11s. Um, I grew up in a basketball stadium. Mum and Dad met in a basketball stadium. Um, I knew how to dribble and shoot and that sort of thing at a young age, just because I was around the game. But I didn't actually join a club. I think till I was twelve or thirteen. I mean, what are you? You're seven are you? Mm, yeah. And dad, dad was, dad six ten, mum six
0: four. So yeah, I was. Uh, my daughters are six five. You know, we're we're a big breed. Growing up, you were pretty close to Perth Wildcats legend Andrew Vlahoff. Tell me a bit about that.
1: Basically, we grew up um, a similar way at basketball stadiums. It probably wasn't until we got into our early teens that we really connected and we, we realised we were gonna be on the same teams a bit. There was a fair bit of interest in Andrew if have to go to the States and play college ball. Uh, he was being recruited. He'd gone to high school over in America and, and uh, he was sort of trying to get me a gig, if you like. And what happened was the head coach from the University of New Mexico came down to recruit Andrew and he said, oh, you know, get down here, there's a bloke here. And I went down, but I forgot to take my shoes, so I was barefoot. And um, I'd been at the beach, so I was sandy. And, Uh, I was supposed to be sort of playing dummy defence to make Andrew look good and I got carried away and next thing I knew I was Duncan, left hand, right hand and um, the guy's eyes lit up. You know, he's found a gem. I suppose if you're a recruiter, the, the idea is to travel to far corners of the globe and find a seven footer with two hands.
0: So Luke, when you get to New Mexico, they like their ball there, don't they?
1: They love their basketball in Albuquerque. It's a great town to be. It's really the main show. There's no pro teams there. And initially, I wasn't that well received because I was just, you know, I was just a knockabout kid trying to have some fun. And they had all these expectations, the public and the basketball staff. And and um, it wasn't until the end of my freshman year that we had a team come through who had a an NBA guy who was a a guy that was going to the NBA that year. He, so he's a senior. Well, I had a very good game against him. And at that stage, the penny kind of dropped. I said, Well, if he's going to the league then surely I can go to the league. You know, um, I still think, you know, despite all the things that have happened, that probably my house in days in basketball were those last couple of years in Albuquerque where I really figured out how to play. And I just loved playing with
0: my college teammates and in that environment. From the NCAA to the NBA, so it's the 1991 draft pick and you're taken number seven by the Minnesota Timberwolves. A big change, I'd reckon. Yeah, the, the leap to the NBA was another,
1: another leap that I probably wasn't that prepared for, but it was a big jump. So I got to Minnesota, they, you know, they had a contract holdout. Um, they already had two centres, a veteran guy and a recent draft pick. The crowd weren't into me because they already had two centres, and I was sort of, you know, pretty green, really, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, it was a bad year. I actually, at one stage, I... Um, I got Andrew to talk to Kerry Stokes and see what they could conjure up for me back here. I want to go. I wanted to go and have some fun and play basketball and be
0: around crew that I like. So, so Luke, there was a chance you'd come back to Australia and play for Kerry Stokes Perth Wildcats and not the NBA. At that stage, I was pretty
1: disenchanted with it and, and not, not enjoying it and the whole, the whole thing. And you know, when you're on a team that wins 17 games in a year, everyone starts to. You know, three-on-one fast break turns into. A shot for the guy with the ball and you're not playing, getting any help on d and um yeah i just yeah i wasn't digging it at all your brother griff wrote you a special letter was it a turning point my brother griff ended up writing a letter which to to sort of paraphrase it said pull your head out of your out of your ass and um just go just love the game just play the game you know have some fun and um once I loosened up and started enjoying it and just tried to treat the game as, as a game, because for a while there it was a job and it was responsibility and it was television and it was the whole of Australia and it was I was failing and, you know, all that stuff's whirling around in, in, a, in a young man's head. It's hard to just focus on on the task. felt like I was letting a whole country down because I wasn't killing it. I was struggling. One night you get a phone call when it's good news and bad news. Yeah, um, it was really good news and good news, but... Uh, I was taking my, my wife out to have dinner and it was the, it was the trade deadline was that evening and uh, sort of half expecting a call and the phone rang as we were walking out the door and it was Trader Jack saying, Luke, I've got good news and bad news. And The bad news is we've traded you, which is actually good news, and, uh, and the good news is it's to Chicago, which I at the time thought was bad news because I wanted to go, I had another idea, I wanted to go to Golden State. But, Then quickly the penny dropped that I was going to be playing with Horace Grant Scotty Pippen and Phil Jackson and it all came together and it was just, um, I suppose it's one of those moments where you just, uh, I've never won the lottery but I imagine that's what it's like, like, what's what it feels like, what have I done to deserve this, am I good enough to play in Chicago? As soon as I got to Chicago, I got to my first practice and Phil was there and they were doing things that were basketball again. It was, you know, three guys moving together and doing things without the ball. And it was five guys without the ball. The first 20 minutes of practice, there wasn't even a ball. It was like five-man Tai Chi. I just thought it was great. Um, But I knew I was, I knew I'd have found a basketball home and I just had to make it stick.
0: So Luke, when you joined the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan's not there. He'd retired after his father had been tragically killed. March 17, 1995, a fax comes through. It's from Michael Jordan. I'm back.
1: Well, we'd seen him lurking. He'd been lurking around a bit and, and uh, he'd even practised a couple of times and, and we sort of had a sense of what was going on. But when, when all that happened, we went from driving to the car park at the back of the Berto Centre where we practised, relatively unmolested, one security guard, nothing much going on, to, to police escorts. And, and security passes and unbelievable media scrutiny. So, yeah, really, it, it amped things up. Uh, and, and practice went from being what I considered really hard and intense to a whole nother level. When we were winning the 17, all three championships, but in particular that 72 and 10 season, I thought our practices were harder than the games. Like, we, they were, we were more intense than a lot of the games. But I'd been trying to like my teammates in the NBA, i have been trying to do this, bring them together, do this thing. But suddenly in that environment, it was OK to try to punish someone at practice. And um, really that's when my professional game started to feel better. I, I started to smack guys. I started to be more confident. So that's the biggest difference when Michael came was that, that
0: practice environment. He... <coughs> Didn't give much praise, but there is a story. One you, you lit up a match. Can you just talk us through that, Luke? Yeah, it's a, uh, actually it's
1: a it's a sad story in a lot of ways. <laughs> All a praise from Michael was a nod. Or who was I? I was happy to be nodded at. Anyway, we um, we went into Detroit, and I, I think I had sort of fifteen or eighteen points in the first half, and a bunch of rebounds, a bunch of dunks, and. Michael, we got back in the locker room and Michael was giving me high five and hugging me. Oh, man, that was great. If you play like that, we're going to win a championship. This is awesome, you know, and he was super excited. I'd never seen him like that, ever. Like, he was always dour and, and you know, <laughs> in the second half I got my fourth foul pretty quickly and my fifth foul right after that and sat on the bench. I didn't score another point or get another rebound the whole game and, and uh, came into the locker room after the game. We won, but... Um, as we were doing at that stage. And Michael said, he was, I'm never going to say
0: anything good to you ever again. Was Dennis Rodman a guy that came from different angles?
1: Yeah, Dennis, Dennis only ever, never had the same angle once in his whole life, I don't think. And he was, um, he was great for me, actually. Dennis was another one that sort of freed me up to, to just play and, and have a bit of fun with it at the same time as he had an, just an immaculate focus on the court, equal to Michael's. But he was, you know, he was great for me because he definitely taught me, I was closer to Dennis. You know, I'd put my arms around Dennis and and go out to the transgender clubs with Dennis or whatever he wanted to do. But I had, a, I, I, I could get a lot from Dennis. So I learned a lot a lot of focus from him.
0: Yeah. Luke, it was the era of the big guy. Um, tell us about some of those incredible
1: opponents. But there was, it was a big generation of big guys. You know, there was Alonzo Mornings, there was... Rick Smith, who was a handful, who was Arvidas Sabonis was in the league at that stage. Everyone seemed to have a, a monster um, and my job was to wrestle them, So And any insights into O'Neill? I will tell you one story that I think you might like about Shaq. And so Scotty and Ron and those guys used to tease me that I had no elevation and never really left the ground. That's why I didn't really, you know, <laughs> didn't do a lot of dunking. Anyway, we are playing against Shaq and uh, we were down by three or four points and... Phil said, all right, you know, go to the hacker Shack." So I let Shaq get nice deep position and wrapped him up, and of course he, you know, missed his two free throws. We went back down the other end. MJ hit a jumper or something. So now we're down by one. Come back down this end, let Shaq get really deep position, which is risky. And as the ball came in, grabbed him up, I had a few fouls to give, which was rare. And um, same thing, he kind of, you know, missed his two free throws and he started to get really frustrated. Anyway, the next time down the court, the same thing happened and he was basically right under the basket on the baseline and as the ball came in, I was just like, this is the game, i got to go and I just jumped on his back. And this is a big man, like, so if my ass is from front to back is there, <laughs> his is out of the frame. <laughs> jumped on his back and he jumped anyway and the whole bench fell apart. The, it was the highest I ever got off the floor was on Shaq's back. <laughs> <laughs> That's how powerful he is. <laughs> he
0: is a seriously powerful man. You won three championships with the Chicago Bulls, but for you the first one was absolutely remarkable. Can you remember that moment? I can remember as we got to game to, to the end of game
1: six and the scoreline was, it was, you know, it was mathematically they weren't going to beat us and I was on the bench at that stage. And. Everything, you know, they say it, it's an old, it's been said a hundred times that everything slowed right down and, and I was just absorbing it all and really into it. The most interesting thing for me, in hindsight, was that I discovered that it was actually a really personal moment. I didn't want to cuddle my teammates. I didn't want to run up in the crowd and high-five my wife. High-five my wife. I just wanted to sort of be there. I wanted to be in my own little space. But it's hard to have a personal moment in front of 25,000 people in a national audience. You win a, a world championship. you sort of arrived in your own mind a little bit, you've got somewhere you've sort of now all the stuff and the sacrifices and the failures and the wins and, and all that sort of had added, added up to something and you can put your hands around it and I found it hugely emotional.
0: You competed at three Olympic Games for Australia, Seoul. Barcelona and Sydney. Did you enjoy playing at the Olympic Games?
1: Yeah, I loved playing Olympics. I was back with my mates. I was back with the guys I grew up with. Obviously, Andrew Gaze is a bit older, but I was back in my my crew, so to speak. And it was back into that Australian environment where everyone was mates and everyone supported each other. And that felt good. That was a different environment, and I liked it, yeah. Gaze
0: should intercept.
1: Longley's under the basket. Should go for the
0: power slam. I don't know how clearly you remember all these days. We were fourth in Seoul, we were sixth in Barcelona. Um, you didn't play Atlanta, which I'll ask you about, and fourth in Sydney. I feel like we were bridesmaids too many times when I was playing. So coming fourth
1: twice at the Olympics and falling short of the World Championships. Now I never had a great Olympics. I, I, Sydney, I played all right right, and I got injured. It's always been one of those things that I felt like I didn't quite deliver to, or to myself, or or, you know, contribute enough to, to, the, to the Australian basketball public, I felt like we deserved a medal after all the development. You know, we sort of rushed up the up the world rankings, if you like, and then just knocking at the door, and we never quite got there, and I suppose that's another incentive for me to do this coaching gig that I'm doing with,
0: with the Boomers. 1996 in Atlanta, you are probably at the peak of your powers, but an ankle injury ruled you out. Well, it, yeah, so the, the ankle retired me effectively, and...
1: Um, but the first time I ever really had to have it addressed properly was at the end of that season, which was the Atlanta Olympics. And another first, you know, Australia hadn't really had to see that before. They hadn't had to see a young man make a decision about his financial professional career ahead of ahead of the Olympic event. And really, it wasn't even my decision. I needed an ankle surgery and, and the Bulls were paying me a lot of money and, and that was what it was. I couldn't play. Um, certainly... You know, I think some people and, you know, and people close to me sort of question, but it's Olympics, you know, where are your priorities? How is that all, all pan out? But that was, in my mind anyway, um, it was opening a door to professional sport for Australians, for, at least in the basketball community, to see, you know,
0: those are tough decisions. What about Sydney for you and that experience?
1: Yeah, so Sydney was great. Um, I was right at the end of my physical basketball life cycle, if you like. I felt like the stage was set for us, and uh, yeah, we just, I, I, the French game, we'd beaten them three times in in France, or in Europe leading up to the Olympics. We, um, we felt pretty good about ourselves going in the game. We got down by 10, then I got injured, I hyperextended my knee, and um, yeah, we just never recovered from it. I think that is singularly the most disappointing moment in my whole basketball career was that recognition that we were one game against a beatable team from going to the medal rounds.
0: Tell me about the physical toll the game takes out of you.
1: My ankle was the, physically the biggest, um, that basically just eroded over time. And when you weigh 125 kilos, 130 kilos, and you're up and down it for 15 years, it does that. And to help with that, you
0: had to take a lot of
1: anti-inflammatory. Oh, yeah. You? So the end of my career was in New York, um, and... I'd been taking a lot of anti-inflammatories to get me to, to keep playing, basically. And uh, in those days and prior to that, they gave them out pretty freely and, and I had a lot of tendonitis, and I had, so I ate, I ate anti-inflammatories my whole career and never really considered the consequences much, but at the end of well, what ended my career was my stomach ended up failing effectively, which then shone a light on the ankle, which wouldn't go anymore. I think it's a trap for young, for young athletes and I think they're doing a lot better job of managing it now. Like injuries, you know, when you when you enter a contract to be a professional athlete, there's there's things that come with it. Not every career's, every career's got its compromises, I suppose, and that's one of them.
0: How hard, Luke, was it to adjust from being a highly paid champion in a big sport to coming back and being a, a normal guy?
1: Interestingly for me, I find the, um, the hardest bit was learning to unbe a professional athlete. So for me, it was quite hard to learn to be a professional I think It wasn't natural. Any sport, any basketball fan will tell you, Luke wasn't a natural. Like it, He had to learn how to be a wanker, as I said, and, and how to be professional. Um, unlearning that was harder. Not bringing that
0: home and not bringing that into a in post-basketball life, that was the hardest bit. You've said you live remotely, Am I right in saying the property you live at now, you bought with your very first paycheck? When I looked like being a pro, I said to my dad, Dad, I want a piece of land on the
1: beach. better if it's got a spring or some water. Um, Somewhere between Denmark and Walpole, and he sort of hunted around for a while and came up with a piece of land, which I now own, and... um, I didn't have any money because I was waiting for my contract. So I I signed a um, a bubblegum trading card deal for $50,000, which is more than I'd ever even dreamed of at that stage. And I paid off my college debts and I put pretty much everything else down on on that block of land. And um, I've lived there in the off season ever since. Um, You know, it's a small town. It's uh, it's on the south coast of, of West Australia. And 12 months ago, me and my wife moved there permanently. It's been great. I'm loving it. And again, your wife, a celebrity chef. She's pretty well known, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she, she gets the spotlight these days, which is great. And if, if there's any kid comes running up on the street, it's for her. And they walk straight past me and that suits me just well. Do you ever get approached by people? Since I've been stopped playing, obviously your profile wanes naturally and I've been away from it and I, I've actively discouraged it as well. So to the point where it's gotten, I've gotten so good at it that um, I was saying before, I, I once went down to watch my daughter play and so it's an eight-court stadium and it's the finals. You know, it's a tournament of some sort. I can't remember. And um, I was there all day and not one person came up and said hello or asked for a photo or, or anything. And um, I realised that I had done a really good job of of diminishing my profile. I was actually annoyed when I left. I was like, what do you have to do in this town to get people to say hello, you know? There's three championships, not enough. But uh, I realised afterwards that that was just, you know, you get what you ask for, so that's good.
0: Let's talk boomers. Rio. Can our men get their very first Olympic medal in basketball? I think in Rio we'll be
1: right in the medal hunt, with health and a bit of good fortune. And, I, you know, I've said all along lucks. Luck plays a big, huge part. Um, but if we're healthy and we're not in the medal rounds, then I'll be very disappointed and very surprised. And Luke,
0: unlike when you first started, full of NBA players.
1: Yeah, I think we got eight this year. We got talent at every spot. Um, our guys like each other in the Australian model. You know, I think our NBA guys, well, I know our NBA guys spent All-Star break together in San Diego um so it's a good thing you know they're, they're they're they've come away with us the last few years to europe and they've all invested in the program I and mean, we i feel like we're right there and we're talking you know that's what we're that's what we're going for there's a medal and i don't see why not given what we got in place i think you'll see a lot of emotion out of our guys i think they all understand that this is
0: a a, a bit of a perfect storm of talent and youth and the whole thing and are you in there for the Long haul or the short haul, do you reckon? Because we love, as I said to you earlier, we love having Luke Longley back in the spotlight.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not my decision, mate. I reckon if we get a medal, I'll probably be around for longer and if we
0: don't, I reckon the coaches probably need to go. Look, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I get a feeling that, you know, that special environment that was created in (laughs) Chicago? Yeah. You feel like there's something a little... Special with this team as well.
1: Well, they're totally different um, design to the Chicago environment, but I do feel like this team's they got a lot of they got a lot to offer. Um, there's young guys, there's old guys. I, I really like the team. And I wouldn't be driving all the way from Denmark southwest corner of Australia to go and coach them if I didn't think that. I think that's the strongest
0: endorsement you can yeah, get. There you go. Um I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Really, mate. So I have I really I I enjoyed it. I
1: don't get to talk about this stuff much, so I
0: really enjoyed it too, thank you. Good to see you. Good on, yeah.